I invite you to the book of Luke in chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. It is with that sentence that the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau began his book, Social Contract, in which he articulated his theory of human government. Man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. Rousseau really cared very little about what human government a nation might adopt. His concern was that a nation's laws express the general will of the people and that the people contract with governing officials to enforce those laws and develop those laws. Writing in 1762, Rousseau believed the masses were enslaved by oppressive regimes and he called for liberation. His cry reverberated through France and led ultimately, or was part of leading toward the French Revolution, but it also carried across the sea and affected colonists living in this land who soon after declared independence from Great Britain and established a government by the people and for the people. To this day, America is one of the world's great promoters of democratic freedoms. You may be heard Republican National Convention in New York City this week. President Bush addressed America's efforts in Iraq. And speaking in that context, he said this, or something of the like, very close paraphrase of its not exact words as I remember, but he said, Freedom is not America's gift to the world. It is God's gift to all of us. That is a very muddy statement. Freedom is not America's gift to the world, it is God's gift to all of us. If he meant by that, that all people are created in the image of God, and thereby and therefore are to be treated with dignity and humanity, including various human rights, then we would all agree. And certainly in that sense, freedom is God's gift to us all, created in the image of God. But if he meant, as some claim, that democracy itself is the freedom that God intends all people to have, I think that is misguided. It is misguided not because democracy is inappropriate for any particular nation. It is misguided because Rousseau was wrong. Man is not born free. Man is born in bondage to sin and ruled by Satan. Set sinners free to govern themselves and they will find a way to perpetuate slavery to Satan. You can be liberated from the clutches of a ruthless dictator, and of course we wish that for all people on earth. But you can be given political and religious freedoms and remain bound by sin. That is not the freedom that God wants to give. Our mission as Christians is so much greater than spreading democracy to oppressed lands. 
We're thankful for where these human freedoms are achieved and gained, certainly. But we need to remember that as Christians, there's a greater task at hand. Our mission as Christ's people is to assault the kingdom of darkness and to set people forever free from the chains of sin. Our mission is to go to people born in sin and to break Satan's grip on them by proclaiming the liberating message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before us today is one of the richest passages in all of Scripture dealing with the mission of liberation and the power of the gospel. And we see around us those who give such great efforts to proclaim democracy and to find human freedoms for people. And again, we applaud and we're thankful for those who give such efforts. But we must remember as the soldiers of Jesus Christ that we're in a very different war. And we may contribute to that earlier to that war I previously mentioned, but we are in a different war. There is a bondage. People are not born free. They are born in sin, and we have a message to take. Here again, as I mentioned in this passage, one of the richest in scriptures dealing with that mission of liberation and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we need to say here at the beginning, there, there is a bridge that, that uh, connects the two worlds, the world that we find here in Luke chapter 10 in our own world. They are not the same world entirely. We need to acknowledge that here at the beginning. The mission is not precisely the same. The message that these in Luke chapter 10 will carry, the message of Christ, is of Messiah has come, not Jesus crucified and risen, as would be our message. There is a difference there. We preach Christ crucified and risen and coming again. They preach in this passage Jesus the Messiah coming right behind us, who had not yet died and had not yet risen again. Nevertheless, we preach the same kingdom, the same Savior, the same means of salvation, faith in the message concerning Christ, a message that is delivered by the followers of Jesus to a world that is in bondage. The context here is, remember, as we looked last week, if you were not with us, beginning at verse 51 of chapter 9, Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And so from here through chapter 19 and verse 40, there is an emphasis upon Jesus taking his mission forward to the place of death at Calvary and the ascension that will take place there <coughs> in Jerusalem. Jesus is planning here to visit many villages. Remember back to chapter 9 and verse 1, if you want to just uh, turn back there and remember, there was here a sending out of the 12 disciples of Christ to carry the message of the gospel. And you can kind of just skim down there the first several verses, verses 1 through 6, as we notice there his instructions to these 12, sending them out into various villages to carry this message of the gospel, the liberating gospel of salvation in Christ. As we come to chapter 10 then, we find a very similar emphasis. But here we have evangelists that are sent out by Jesus, numbering uh, more than the twelve. In fact, seventy or seventy-two, depending on the uh, Greek text that your translation opts for. That is found in verse 1 of chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. The 
evangelists are sent out here by Jesus. It says after this. That is probably referring to what? Probably referring to his rejection at the Samaritan town in verse 53 of chapter 9. There's a rejection there in that town. After that rejection, he sends out these evangelists, these 72. In other words, the response to rejection is to keep moving. Verse 56, they went to another village. So they're rejected in the Samaritan town, but Jesus wants them to continue to press forward. Now I mentioned here there's a textual variant. Whether it's 70 or 72, really, of course, doesn't change any theology at all, but the Greek texts are uh, uniquely divided here. Somewhere somebody added the word to, or somebody missed the word to. Some copy is somewhere, and there has been ever since great amounts of ink spilled over which one is the right one. Obviously, it's not going to affect us a whole lot here, but God knows the number, and we can find that out in heaven. But 72 is what our translation has here. And they go out, you notice, two by two. Why is that? I suppose we could fill in the blanks. It's just a, a command of Christ and seems to be wise, but very probably for accountability, for protection, for encouragement. And perhaps for a double witness. Remember Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Nothing should be accepted on the witness of one. There always had to be two witnesses under the law. And so as these individuals are going to various villages, they are uh, going to Jewish people who are going to understand the law and know that no witness is complete unless there is a second witness confirming the point. And so two by two, these 72 go into various villages, groups of 35 or 36 groups of two. And obviously they're going, as it says here, they're going to prepare for Jesus. So obviously he has a very busy itinerary plan. Going into various villages and towns and announcing that Messiah is coming. Two by two into all these villages. Now we come then at verse 2 to instructions for this ministry. They're appointed to this ministry in verse 1. And then we deal with a lengthy section of instructions. First of all, the strategy and purpose. Verse 2 begins with prayer. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. The need is greater than they alone can fulfill, and the task is urgent. So as they travel, they are to be praying. Now, we could spend much time on this verse alone, but you notice here the cooperative effort of prayer, don't you? God knows who He's going to send out. He knows where the laborers are. He knows how many are available. Yet He asked them to pray that He would send out laborers into the harvest. Prayer is a cooperative effort with the work of God. If we care enough about what God is doing we will pray about what God is doing. And of course, this prayer also requires that people will receive the message, doesn't it? That people will not go out into the world and share the gospel of Jesus Christ if they do not first respond to it. And this prayer also, of course, indicates great dependence. God must do the sending. Ask the Lord of the harvest that He would send out workers into the harvest field. Now, of course, of course, we send out workers into the harvest field as well, but it is God ultimately who is the one who does the sending. It's not a marketing approach. It's not a big pep rally to get as many people to go as we can possibly get to go. The issue is to be dependent upon God to send out the people He wants to go and to support those people in their endeavor. Now Jesus in His continuing instructions points to the great danger of this mission. Verse 3, Go! 
I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. This, this mission will involve risk. It will require dependence upon the Lord. He gives some practical guidelines then, beginning there at verse 4, as to what they are supposed to do specifically. Verse 4, do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. No money, no extra baggage, not even an extra pair of sandals is apparently the idea. And don't even stop to greet people on the road. The urgency of the mission is at issue. Jesus did not want them weighed down with a bunch of stuff And so he says, get from village to village as quickly as you can, and we will depend upon godly people in those villages to supply your every need. Once you're there, verse 5, find lodging. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. So speaking peace to a family at their doorstep was a greeting of sorts. It would serve as a means by which the evangelist could determine if that family was receptive to their mission. We don't know exactly how it looked to pass the peace on a a home, but apparently something like shalom. They would use that Hebrew word for peace, shalom, peace. We have come to your town to proclaim the goodness of God. Will you receive us into your home? Now this was much more common in that day as traveling evangelists would go around or traveling speakers and people who would speak for God and set up in a town and lecture for a time being. And so people would more understand what they were asking for, but they would come to the to the home and say peace to you. And it seems that Jesus seems to be indicating here that there would be some type of a connection between this family and the couple, the, the two witnesses who, are, who stood at the door. And they would sense a blessing there from these witnesses and they would respond to it and say, we want you to stay with us in our town. Now Jesus instructs them to keep the stay short. I think it's part of the idea, stay only in this one house. That will keep the stay short. It will eliminate looking around. He says, don't go to another house. They're not going to look around for better accommodations. Accommodations, this is, they're not traveling celebrities. That's not the idea, going from house to house within the town. They're to come to one, t- one place in the town, and once their stay is done there in that house, to move on. Having secured lodging, what were they to do in that town? He gives them here the protocol for receptive towns in verse 9. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. They're to commune around food, verse 8. They are to heal the sick, which is what? Is an evidence of the powers of the kingdom present in their town and city and prepares the way for Messiah to come behind them and to announce who he is. The the messianic king is coming to town, is the point. Jesus is soon to visit your village. The new era of redemption has dawned, and the Messiah is here, and they would heal people to evidence that their message was, in fact, accurate and real. There's also protocol for rejecting towns, beginning at verse 10. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, 
we wipe off against you. The Greek word here for streets indicates that they were to go to the major streets in the village. And they were to do this symbolic act of shaking the dust off their feet, which was something the Jews did to say that this place has no part in God. No place in God. No participation with us. It was a way of distinguishing themselves from this town that had rejected Christ. That is what they are to do. So they go to the town, they announce that they're leaving, they wipe the dust off their feet symbolically, saying that we separate, we sever ourselves from this town. What should they think as that happens? The second part of verse 11, yet be sure of this, says Jesus, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. I I think he's saying, don't let rejection throw you. Know in your hearts that no matter what happens, the kingdom is near. It is approaching. And what should they know about those who reject them? Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Don't take it too personally. Don't get too worked up about it. In fact, have a sense of grief for those who reject you because it will be worse for them than the city of Sodom. Sodom has stood to this very day as a symbol of God's judgment. And those who reject the message of these evangelists are passing on to these communities a, a divine, a pending divine judgment. It seems, does it not, from verse 12, this is just a little sideline which we won't chase for very long, but does it not seem from verse 12 to indicate here that there may be in eternity degrees of punishment? I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, that is the day of judgment, the day that God visits, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. It is very serious to reject the gospel message of a follower of Christ. And Jesus continues with that point. And this, by the way, is a passage of Scripture that many churches in our day studiously avoid. Because it says something that doesn't work. It doesn't itch the ears or uh, satisfy the, the ears of our world. But it's in the text. It's what Jesus said and it's the truth. And so we read it. He deals now as he gives them these instructions with the condemnation of the rejectors. He says in verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Bethsaida was situated on the east side of Jordan, just at the entrance to the mouth, into, uh, in, entrance into Galilee, as the Jordan flows into Galilee. It w- would have been about five miles from Capernaum. We know very little of Christ's ministry here at Bethsaida. We don't even know where Chorazin was. And we have not one note of what Jesus did there. Which says a lot to us, doesn't it? Obviously, the Gospels are not giving us every detail. Remember what John said, if we recorded all the miracles of Christ and all that he did and said, I'm not sure that all the books of the world could contain it. We don't even know what Jesus did in Chorazin. 
But God knows that had Jesus performed in Tyre and Sidon the very miracles that he performed in Chorazin, Tyre and Sidon would have sat down on a heap of ashes, thrown some on their head, and covered their bodies with a coarse goat hair blanket to show their repentance and their humiliation as they considered who Jesus was. But Chorazin, seeing the same miracles, hearing from the same Jesus, said, we're satisfied just like we are. They spurned the Messiah. Another theological note which we could trace for a long time, I won't, but I do want you to engage here for a moment. Will you notice what is said here in verses 13 and 14, that God knows not only all that will happen in the future, He also knows all that would happen under all possible circumstances. Right? He does know all that will happen, but He also knows if the circumstances were different, and that would mean that He knows infinitely more, because He knows all the possibilities and knows then what people would do under those circumstances. I ask you just one question here. Who determines the circumstances that be? He knows it all. And God in His sovereign purposes chooses the world that is. The Bible confirms this over and over again. It messes with our head. It's troubling in many respects. But the one thing we know when we consider what God knows and what God sovereignly ordains is that we can leave this room today and know that God is in control. He is never wringing His hands and wondering what will be. It's in the text. Note it there. Now, verse 15, he continues with Capernaum. And this is a hard word. This is a hard word. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths, down to Hades, down to the realm of the dead. It is a word of judgment. What is Capernaum? Capernaum is the home base of Jesus in Galilee. When he carries on that whole Galilean ministry where he shows so many of his miracles and shows the world who he is, that he is God, that he has power over the natural and supernatural realm, that he has power to forgive sins, that he can perform these miracles at will and cast out demons. Capernaum is his hometown. It's his home base. Will you then be exalted to the heavens as my home base? Will you be exalted to the heavens as you, Capernaum, people living in Capernaum, love to think of their city? No, you will go down to hell. You will go down to Hades. You will go down to the place of punishment. Why? Because you've rejected Christ. That's a hard word. There are others, of course, who will respond. He who listens, verse 16, to you listens to me, but back to the rejectors. He who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. 
Is there not great confidence in those words? As we take the message of Christ, we go out as sheep among wolves, but we carry a message that if biblical and faithful speaks for Jesus. That's an encouraging word. Now, we need to be biblical and we need to be faithful. We can carry the gospel of Jesus and we can mess it up. And we can take the message and make it something that it is not. But if we take the truth of God's word and we share that with an unbeliever, we do speak for Christ and we speak for the Father. And so those who reject us are really not rejecting us, they're really rejecting the Lord. The instructions are given and the 72 leave. Now let's stop for a moment and consider what we have seen. The mission today, is it like this mission or is it different? It's obviously dramatically different, isn't it? We don't know that Jesus is a few towns away and soon to show up at this town. And we speak, as I mentioned earlier, the message of Christ crucified and risen. It is a very different day. And the task now is not going through the villages of Judea and perhaps Samaria and a couple of villages on the other side of Jordan. Today the message goes to the whole world. It's a global mission. It's a very different time. And we as Gentiles take that mission. But the similarities are also there and we want to stress them. Verse 2 The mission of Christ is to lead us into prayer. We are to be praying that God's message would go throughout the world and would reach the lost. Are you praying that God would send out laborers into the harvest? Are we as a church praying for the children in our assembly that God would send some of them to the other parts of the world? That some of them would not hold on to this culture and this place or in fact be led by God to remain here but would go into other parts of the world to serve Him. Are we praying to that end? Are we praying that our children would leave? Are we praying that God would send out labors into those parts of the world that are unreached? You say, I don't even know where they are. Come Wednesday night, you'll know where they are systematically we reveal to the church the places in this world that are unreached and the places where people are not hearing the gospel of Christ, the places where there's no church. There's other ways that you can learn that, and we'd be happy to help you to know how to know where people are not hearing the gospel. We as a church have a job. and One of our jobs is to work with God in the evangelization of this world by praying that He would send out laborers into the harvest. Similarity is also seen with our vulnerability. Verse 3, we are lambs among wolves. That's how we go out. We don't go out protecting ourselves. We go out vulnerable and dependent upon the Lord. There is also the similarity of support. How are these 72 supported? They're supported by individuals out of their own giving. People of God who give of themselves to supply the needs of these 72 evangelists. And in like manner today, very different. Our mission is global. Our situation economically very different. But we have a job to support those who take the gospel of Christ to the ends of the world and who take the gospel of Christ into our own villages and towns around this area. 
more elaborate, but the same principle. God's people need to give that God's work is done. You know, the guy next door that rejected these two evangelists didn't spend any money or give any food to keep them alive. It was the person who received them, whose peace passed upon him, that gave from their household to care for these people. It's extra giving. It costs. It's a price the world does not pay. But we as believers must pay it, that we see others take the gospel and are supported in their efforts and endeavors. We see also a similarity that we are to use wise means. There's planning and there's strategy here. Jesus assesses the situation and says, here's how it is to be carried forward. We need that wisdom of God to carry out the the plan wisely. We also see the similarity that we are ambassadors for Christ and that there will be a response, some who receive the message of the gospel and others who reject it. But the evangelists are sent out then with this mission, and it reminds us of our own mission of taking the gospel of Christ. We find at verse 17 that the evangelists report back to Jesus. First of all, we see their formal report, verse 17. This is all that we really have of it. But the 72, verse 17, returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. The mission was a smashing success. I think we should probably read this verse in light of chapter 9, verses 37 to 40. Remember back there after Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down and what was said of his disciples? Verse 38, Teacher said one, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only son. A spirit seizes him in horrible uh, physical manifestations. Then verse 40, he says, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Well, now they can. And now they are. Now there's great success. They're going from village to village. We don't know exactly how it happened, but two of them walk into a town and perhaps they see a demon-possessed man there. And the man comes up to them and he's screaming things at them to intimidate them and to show that he's possessed by Satan. And they say to this demon, as they watch Jesus do so many times, come out of him, and the demon listens and runs And as they go from village to village and town to town, the demon-possessed come, and they're able to speak a word, and and the demons flee. That's got to be pretty exciting. Can you imagine coming back, and you begin to share notes with others, and they had the same experiences in town after town. Satan is on the run. The demons cannot stand up to us, and they're excited. They've gotten a stiff taste of kingdom power, and they're intoxicated by it. So as they return and compare stories, they are exhilarated. And you know, there really is nothing so exciting as to talk with someone bound in sin and to watch as the power of the gospel transforms that individual. As their eyes open up and their heart opens up, there's nothing more exciting in this world than to see that happen. They come back with all of this enthusiasm and say to Jesus, now sitting at his feet again, all 72 of them, perhaps there's many others with him, hearing the report, Satan's on the run. Even the demons listen to what we're saying. 
Well, Jesus responds at verse 18 and first of all confirms their victory. Jesus says, I think in verse 18, there's more going on than you know. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now some take this to mean that Jesus in his pre-incarnate state saw Satan kicked out of heaven back soon after the universe was created. I think the Greek text might help us here a little bit with an imperfect verb which might be translated, I was watching or I have been watching. And it seems perhaps that Jesus sees a vision here. As his followers, as these disciples are out into the various villages, Jesus for a moment sees beyond this physical temporal world and he sees the spiritual supernatural uh, battle. And in that moment, he watches as Satan stumbles and comes down through the sky, as it were, like a lightning bolt. Satan has been tripped up. We don't know exactly what Jesus means. It would be very interesting to know. But perhaps this is the idea, some sort of a vision. Or in some way, Christ sees prophetically the ultimate defeat of Satan. And that defeat has started. It has started as Christ's disciples come and cast out demons. And it will end when Jesus rises from the dead in Jerusalem. Satan is already falling and will ultimately fall at the end of the age. But the battle has begun and the victory has started. Indeed, the evangelists had invaded the demonic realm and won this round. A prophecy of the long struggle against satanic power. So Jesus confirms their exorcisms. They were real. They were more significant than they even knew. But he then, secondly, promises further success. So he confirms what they saw, then what they experienced, and then he, then he um, promises further success in verse 19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. What's the deal with snakes and scorpions? Well, I think they are man's enemies, as we say, in the natural realm. Why do we have predators? Why are there animals that attack people? Why are there scorpions that kill people and snakes that bite them and kill them? Remember in the messianic reign of Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom, there will be no such animals. Remember that picture of the child playing at the cobra's den, handling the snake and the lion and the lamb laying down together? That's coming again. It's been here once and it will return. We don't live in that world right now. And the predators of this world, the animals that are dangerous in this world, the scorpions and the, and the venomous snakes, are a symbol and a reminder that we live in a fallen and cursed world. Jesus says, as you are stamping on Satan, you're going to be able to stamp even on the natural world that is cursed and brought against me and harmful to people. The point being, you are entering into a victory in this battle and you will experience this victory in unique ways. You'll be even able to stomp on scorpions and snakes, the symbol of Satan's presence in this world. You saw what you saw. It was real. Your powers are bigger than you know because of the powers of the kingdom of God. But I want you to get this, says Jesus. I have a third line. I want to steer your joy, verse 20. Notice what he says. Now, before you get there, I mean, wouldn't it be great to cast out demons? And wouldn't it be great to stamp on venomous snakes and to have this power over the evil realm? And just I mean, how exciting that would be. More exciting than anything we ever experience, we might think. 
But notice what Jesus says to them and to us. However, verse 20, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Wow. That's bigger. That's better. If your names are written in heaven, that's the ultimate. Rejoice in that. They weren't wrong to rejoice in having power over the demons. I don't think that's what Jesus says when he says don't rejoice. I think it's a comparative statement. Don't rejoice so much in that. Rejoice more in your salvation. If your name is on heaven's pre-registration log, you have every reason to rejoice for all eternity, and you will rejoice in that. The joys of heaven far exceed any joys in this life. So if your name is written there, rejoice above all in that. You see, then it doesn't even require success, does it? It's not ultimately success in our mission that brings joy to our heart. It is ultimately the fact that we know God and He knows us and that He's rescued us from sin. William Barclay tells the story of Sir James Simpson who pioneered the use of chloroform and may be the one man who has saved the world more pain than any other individual on the planet in all of history. Someone set him up one day, probably to get a good news report, and said, uh, Mr. Simpson, what has been your greatest discovery? Realizing where the individual was heading, he decided to send him off and to talk the truth. And he said this. This is the man who invented or found chloroform and used it. He said, my greatest discovery was that Jesus Christ is my Savior. There is nothing in this world that we can do. There is nothing that we can accomplish that can compare with that. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, you have eternity in your hand. Rejoice in that. Oh, how dull we've become. Is it not true? How dull we become. We get so used to our salvation. Jesus says it compares with nothing. He says to these individuals, in a sense, I've been there. I've been there in heaven. You don't know what you have. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Nothing can take that joy away. Well, and what Jesus calls them to do, He does Himself at verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, says, said, I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because You have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was Your good pleasure. Specifically, Jesus rejoices in the Father's good pleasure to open the blind eyes, not of the wise and the self-satisfied, but the eyes of the needy and the insignificant. As Pastor Pratt read earlier this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and following, we find there, is it the mighty that God has chosen? Is it the great and the powerful that He chooses? No. He turns the lights on and reveals the truth, and it is His good pleasure to give His salvation to those who are needy and fallen and weak. 
and sinful. Jesus rejoices in the plan of God. We should come in here on Sundays and rejoice that there's so many ugly people in here. We should rejoice that there's so many poor people in here. We should rejoice that there's so many dumb people in here. We're God's people, not because of those things. But he loves the weak. We're the weak. We're certainly the weak. He loves the weak. And he saves the weak. Jesus rejoices in this plan. You talk about a liberation. This isn't man is everywhere born free and we need to liberate him from the oppressive outside. It is everywhere man is born in bondage. But I will release the prisoners. I will release the small and the insignificant. I will release and show them the glories of my saving grace to the weak. And Jesus is excited with that. And we should be. We gather on the Lord's day as God's people. We will enter someday through salvation in Jesus Christ into the splendors of heaven. And we will inherit it. Jesus rejoices, and so should we. Verse 22, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There is an intimacy, in other words, between God the Father and God the Son that no one on earth can fully fathom. We cannot figure God out. You're never going to be able to have the time to do all of the research to test every religious path in the world. It won't happen. We don't live that long. In fact, were we able to do that, we would never still understand God and understand His Son because they are infinite beings, the depths of which we could never plumb. But in His mercy and His grace, yes, Father, for this was Your good pleasure, says Jesus. There are some we have chosen to reveal the truth. The Son chooses to reveal the Father. And by that means, and that means alone, we have the capacity to embrace and receive Christ as Savior. Among those individuals who believe are these disciples. And so Jesus, continuing His rejoicing, says in verse 23, He turns to the disciples and said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Do you realize what privilege is yours? Remember Jesus said of Moses, He longed to see my day. The great Moses wanted to see my day. And you're here seeing it. Think of all those prophets. Think of the kings. I think of David in particular and his great 110th Psalm who saw the Lord, who said to his Lord, and who saw the priest after the order of Melchizedek, who saw something greater coming. That king and all of those prophets who prophesied the coming of Christ, the the messianic age and all of its privilege, the drawing to God and the new covenant and on and on it goes. He says, you don't understand all of the prophets and kings. They wanted to see this day. And here you are. You're in the midst of it. Do you have eyes to see? Open up your eyes. See what you have. 
And what would Jesus say to us? We stand in some respects in an even more blessed position, for we have seen Christ crucified. And we have seen Christ risen. None of these disciples understood what that meant. Not yet. There would be a day when they would, but not yet. We see it in its fullness. We see the meaning of Christ crucified and risen. What great privilege is ours. The message of salvation has got more and more specific and more and more exciting to share. And with that great privilege that we have to be the messengers of Christ comes great responsibility. I think we really struggle to realize the significance of our relationship to Jesus Christ in this world. Like the evangelists in this passage, God has revealed to us the saving truth of the gospel. We can storm the gates of hell with the gospel. We have a message to take that Satan cannot stand up to. We have the privilege to work with God as He enlightens the eyes of sinners and to rescue people who are born in bondage and are destined for eternity in hell if they're not liberated from the gospel. And so we speak the message of Christ's powerful word. Remember, Christian, it's not in you. It's not in your wisdom. It's not in your stature. It's not in your looks and in your smarts. That is not the power of God unto salvation. What is the power of God unto salvation? It is the gospel. It is the truth. What we need to do is disseminate the truth, and God will save by His grace. Release it and see it for what it is. There's a great cosmic battle that is going on. We have the privilege to go into this world as sheep among wolves, and we have the privilege to say, here is what God has done. Receive His message of salvation. We have the privilege to join these 72 as it were, and to proclaim the truth. To be the answer to their prayer that God would send out laborers into the harvest. That's our privilege. The tool that He's placed in our hands are not free-flowing miracles to walk into a hospital and liberate everybody on third floor and meet them outside in the parking lot to preach the gospel to all these people who've just been healed of life-threatening disease. That's not the tool that God puts in our hand now. The tool that He puts in our hand now is this. It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have the truth to take, and it is the truth that assaults the kingdom of lies and the father of lies. We take the truth of Jesus Christ. You are not inherently good. You are not born free. You are born, as you know, in the depth of your soul in sin. And there's a rebellion that's going on against God. But the good news is He loves you still and loves you thus that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the penalty of your sin on Himself and to pay that penalty with His own life. And He rose in victory over the realm of death and Satan and sin, and you can join Him in that victory by simply putting your trust and your confidence, your faith in His saving power. That Word is power. 
It's the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you are holding that power in your lap, and it's lodged in your mind, and it can come out your mouth, and it can show itself in your life, and by that we can set people free. Free not for a time. Free not to find ways to remain in Satan's slavery, but free forever and ever. People are not born free. They're enslaved, but with the gospel, they can be set free. That's the gospel that we have. And it's the gospel we must proclaim. And it's the gospel that God has brought some of you to, even in fairly recent days, to embrace, to come to know Him as Savior. Let's carry the truth on. Is your name written in heaven? Is your name written in heaven? I say this by warning and out of love. Remember what Jesus said about Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. What tragedy it would be to sit week after week after week and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to know all that truth and to reject it. Are you in the faith? Be sure that you have submitted to Christ as Savior and Lord, that you're in the faith. But if you are, by the way, if you're not, talk to us today. Not that we can give it to you, but we can do what we're talking about here and proclaim what he says is saving, is saving and we can show you that. But if you are in the faith, then let's leave this day rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. Let's rejoice and let's proclaim. And now let's sing. As we look at our service of worship sheet, and at the bottom there we have words that were written for our text today, excellent words that will help us to remember the passage, and I hope will now, in light of this passage, mean more to you than, the past, than they meant the first time you sung them. But let's stand together as we look at the bottom of that um, sheet on the first page, Rise Up and Heed the Savior's Call. And as we sing, as always, if you would like to join me here at the front, as we're singing, we can put you in a place of private counsel where you can seek the Lord if you'd like, or perhaps there's a uh, statement of faith that you would like to make uh, concerning baptism or identification with this assembly. We encourage you to join me here as we sing. Rise up and heed the Savior's call. Rise up and heed the Savior's call, go forth without delay. Rise up to reap the harvest full, rise up His word obey. Across the street, around the world, to neighbors far and near, with boldness, love, and faithful heart, proclaim Christ loud and clear. Stand up, but stand in God's own strength. The mission, it is clear. As lambs into of wolves, go now, the wolves must hear. What great delight when used of God to 
see them turn from sin. What joy to channel his elect while he invites them in.